for our study this morning. Many times single people feel that feel kind of left out in the church because so much is directed towards families. Our passage this morning is directed primarily towards you who are single. But as we get into it, I think that those of us who are married will see that the passage has a lot to say to us as well. Because it speaks a lot about our values and how our relationship with the Lord should affect our values in this life. Many times, single people feel that their life is kind of in a holding pattern. That they're just spinning their wheels until they get married and life can really begin. But Paul's word in this section is that that kind of thinking is in error. Because life really begins not when you get married, but what really makes life important and fulfilling is your relationship with the Lord when you get involved in serving Him. Verses 17 to 24, he says that the external conditions of our lives, which include our marital state, are really not the important thing about life. In verses 25 to 35, he says that singleness has some real advantages. And then 36 to 40, he gives a couple of specific recommendations about specific circumstances in which people should consider singleness as a real live option. First of all, let's look at verses 17 to 24. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Here he says that Christianity shouldn't be a revolutionary type of uh, of religion such that we change all of our social circumstances when we become Christians. In verses 12 to 16, he said that a believer, when a person becomes a believer, he shouldn't automatically divorce his believing spouse. As a matter of fact, he shouldn't do it at all. Likewise, he shouldn't uh, despise the social condition which he is in when he becomes a Christian and think that he has to change things all around. Because, Paul says, the social conditions, the circumstances of your life when you became a Christian are really not the essential thing for you. First of all, he talks about the religious condition. He says, was any man already circumcised when he became a Christian? Well, don't let him become uncircumcised. It was a custom for the Greeks in this era to participate in athletic events naked. It would become very apparent very quickly which, which people were Jews. And the Jews sometimes become, would become enamored in the Greek culture and life 
and want to identify with that and would be ashamed of their Jewishness and therefore would undergo surgery to remove the marks of circumcision. He says if you were circumcised and you became a Christian, don't remove that. Don't worry about it. Don't look down upon yourself because you were Jewish. Or were you a Gentile when you became a Christian? Were you uncircumcised? Well, don't let any Jewish Christians make you think that that the really spiritual and in-group are those who are circumcised, those who are, have come from a Jewish background. Don't let that be a matter of importance to you. Don't look down upon yourself or feel bad because you were born in the wrong kind of family or race or culture or, or background. Don't let that be a big deal to you because that's not really important. He says what's important is keeping the commandments of God living out a relationship with Jesus Christ and being obedient to him as Lord. And then he says, were you called while a slave? Well, don't worry about that. Now, I personally can't think of a type of social situation I would less like to be born in than that of slavery. As a slave, you have no freedom to choose what kind of work you do. You do what's assigned to you. And most naturally, it would be a menial type of task. You don't have the option of choosing your mate, of choosing your home, of choosing the place that you want to live. You just go and do as you're assigned by your master. And according to all that we hold dear, we would think that would be horrible to be in slavery. And yet Paul says here, were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't worry about it. It's really not that big a deal. And we respond, not that big a deal? How can slavery not be that big of a deal? Well, he says it's not that big of a deal because the really important thing is your relationship with Jesus Christ. He says in verse uh, 22, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. In other words, you may be a slave externally, but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can make you a free man internally. And the freedom that you have from him, freedom from guilt, freedom from the power of sin and enslaving habits, freedom from fear and anxiety and self-pity and and all these things that, that tear life apart, these are the real freedoms. And in Christ, you are truly free. Your external situation, your external circumstances may not be what you would like. He says, relative to your relationship with Christ, they're not really that important. He does say, though, uh, in verse 21, but if you are able to become free, rather do that. He does acknowledge that our external circumstances have some bearing in our life and are of some importance. So Christianity is not against all sorts of progress and social betterment. Marx criticized Christianity as being an opiate of the people because he said it dulls people's senses and it takes away the incentive to overthrow their government and to strive for social betterment and improvement. And he's right. It does because it puts social progress in a proper light. We see that that, though it has some importance, it's not of ultimate importance. 
It's not really the most valuable thing about life. So he says if you, your conditions in life are restricting, restricted, maybe you can't get a job that is as highly, uh, that pays as well as you want, because maybe your personality is not forceful enough to get an aggressive sales job, or your education is not enough to, to become a professional uh, in some, a certain field you would like, well, don't worry about it. Because your external conditions and circumstances are not the big deal. He says, if you are free, even the one who is free is Christ's slave. Because even if you are free in your external circumstances, you're still not totally free. You're still a slave of Christ. If you're poor, you might think, I'm limited, I can't really do what I want. But if you're rich, you realize that also you cannot do just like you would like. Because your riches are part of uh, your resources in Christ's hands. You are his slave. Your life is not yours to do just what you want to do with it. Whether it belongs to Christ. He says you were bought with a price. He has paid the price to win you. He's delivered you from the power of sin. But he's also made you his own. And therefore, it's not as if we're doing God a favor when we give to him some of our time or money or talents. We're just giving him what we owe him. We're giving him his due. Because we're, by right, his slaves. He owns all of our time, all of our resources. Now, when Paul says in verse 23, do not become slaves of men, I think he doesn't mean don't sell yourselves into literal physical slavery. And I think that because he changes uh, the words he uses to refer to people. In Greek, there are two different ways to say you. Just as in the part of the country I come from, there are two different ways to say you. If there's one you, it's you, and if there are two or more, it's you all. And Greek reflects the same kind of difference. In verses 17 to 24, in all the other verses, all of these verses, Paul is saying you, singular, or each man, or this man, singular. But when he gets to verse 23, he uses plural words. You all were bought with a price. And then then though the you is not reflected in English, it's there in the Greek with the do not become slaves of men. You all do not become slaves of men. And the you all includes both the slave and the freedman of verses 21 and 22. And the way we become slaves of men is by becoming enslaved to their values and their thought patterns. I was... uh, interested to see what some of the commentators said about this verse and I checked four different commentaries and all of them agree this is what Paul's point is He's saying don't become enslaved to the opinions of man if people around you say the big deal about life to make a big issue out of your external circumstances then you're becoming enslaved to their opinions if you feel at work well why don't I get that promotion I want to gain more status and be successful and get ahead. And why is it that everybody else gets promoted and not me? If you start worrying about that, then you become enslaved to men's thoughts, their opinions. Because the men of the world say that the important thing about life is that you get ahead, that you gain status, 
and advance in your job. Now, Christians should work hard. Probably some advancement is going to come. It's not wrong to have some personal ambition, but we have to keep it in the proper perspective. He says it's not that big a deal if you advance. It's like for a slave. It's If you can get your freedom, we'll get it. That's fine. But if you can't, don't worry about it because it's not really that important. Or we become slaves to men when we start thinking, I've got to get a bigger house or a nicer car or I have to get more money so that I can uh, go out to dinner as much as my friends do or do all the things they do. We become enslaved to men. We think that we have to be like other people and have what they have. Paul would say, well, if you can get the nicer things, that's fine. But if you can't, it's really no big deal. Because the important thing is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the real secret to life. Remember Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He is the secret to fulfilling our inner needs, the emptiness that we all feel naturally in life, apart from him. It's through him that we have internal satisfaction and real fulfillment in life. And this is a place that this section, though it doesn't mention marriage, I think hits marriage very squarely. So many people who are single buy the world's line And many people in our culture say, well, if you're not married, then you're out of it. If you're not married, you're just kind of spinning your wheels until you can get married. And only then does life really begin. You can't really be happy and fulfilled unless you get a spouse. And again, Paul says, don't become slaves of men. It's better not to be married than to have a bad marriage and do as many do as just grab the first person who comes along. As a matter of fact, as you'll go on to say in 25 to 35, singleness has some real advantages that Christians need to to, uh, consider. Or if you're married and your marriage is not what you want it to be, don't buy the opinions of men and become enslaved to them. When they say that the secret to life is being happily married, if you're not happily married, then you should divorce the person, get away and try to find somebody else who will make you happy. Because God says he wants you to stay in that marriage and to find fulfillment through him. To trust him to make that marriage work. Don't become the slaves of men's opinions, Paul said. Now in 25 to 35, he speaks to those who are unmarried directly. And he says that that singleness has real advantages. Verse 25, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. The word command in Greek is emphatic. Literally, now concerning virgins, a command of the Lord, I have none. So he's not giving us a command, saying if you're single, don't get married. But he's giving us his advice as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. In other words, by the mercy of God, Paul was chosen as an apostle and therefore is giving inspired advice. It's not a command of God not to get married, but it's an advice from God that singleness has some real advantages. And he speaks of the advantages of singleness in three different ways. First, in verses 26 to 28. 
I think then that this is good in, pre- in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. So Paul says that there is a present distress. Probably there was intense persecution going on at the time. Christianity was an illegal religion, and there was persecution worldwide throughout this uh, uh, for Christians at this time. And what Paul is probably saying is in light of some particularly distressing circumstances there in Corinth, it's really better for you if you don't get married. Because if you get married and you're undergoing intense hardship, you have to worry all the time about, you know, what is this, how's, how are my actions going to affect my spouse and my children? How do we care for them when I lose my job because I'm a Christian? And, and this, that, and the other. He says, I want to spare you that kind of hardship. If there's a plague in the town, and you're married, you have to worry about, well, how are my actions going to affect my family? I may come down with a disease, and my wife will lose a husband, and my children will lose a father. But if you're single, you have freedom. You don't have to worry about that. You can serve with more abandon, because you don't have to be bogged down with worries about your family. And that's Paul's point in this section. As a single person you have those added freedoms. In verses 29 to 31, he says that it's an advantage to be single because this world is passing away. And things like marriage are not really going to last anyway. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. In other words, the time between now and the second coming of Christ. So that from now on, it should be retranslated, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who make use of the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. He says that Jesus Christ is coming. The time has been shortened. He will come like a thief in the night. Now, God has never told us the precise time when Christ will come. But each generation, he has told it's going to be soon. It could be any time. Because he wants us all to live in light of eternity and have that perspective guide us and help us to choose our values in this life appropriately. Now, it may sound to you that Paul is saying in these verses that you should, in light of the second coming of Christ, you should start neglecting your families, you should become cold and callous, show no emotions, never cry or laugh, uh, withdraw from the world. But what Paul is doing here is using a common figure of speech known as hyperbole, which is exaggeration for effect. It's the same thing that Christ used in Luke 14 when he says, he who does not hate his father and mother and wife and sister and brothers for my sake in the Gospels is not worthy of me. Now, Christ was not saying we should literally hate our family. What he's saying is that our love for him should be so far above our love for our family that it might appear that we hate them. 
Paul is using the same kind of language here, that same kind of strong language for effect. Even the married person. He said singleness has an advantage because even if you get married, you can't make full use of that marriage. Because if you're a person who is spiritually attuned, you realize that this world is passing away. The form of this world is passing away, is what he says. And the word translated form just means uh, uh, external uh, manifestations or external parts of things. Jesus said that marriage is not going to last for eternity. So some of you, you say, hallelujah. I don't have to live with that person forever. Uh, others of us, maybe you're saddened a bit. But he says marriage is not going to last forever. The possessions that we have, materially, are not going to last forever. All these things are going to pass away. So I want you to be spiritually attuned and to invest your life in things that are going to last. If you're married, well, you can't take full advantage of that in the sense that you can't look upon your spouse as the means of your personal fulfillment. There are times which you're going to have to sacrifice what you would like to have in your marriage in terms of time together and closeness and, and stuff like that because you are people with a purpose in this life, serving God. Not that we should sacrifice our families and make life miserable. But even those of us who are married can't take full advantage of it in the sense that we can't spend all the time that we'd really like to because we have other things that are, that are more important of more eternal significance. He says, if you weep, it should be as those who did not weep. Or as if you do suffer losses of things, don't become incapacitated by them full of self-pity and depression and mourning in such a way that you cannot see the people around you. You cannot minister to them and be in tune with God and the opportunities that he's bringing before you, even in the time of sorrow. If you rejoice, he said, be as those who don't rejoice. In other words, it's okay to rejoice, but don't get so sky high that you lose perspective. And I've seen people who get so uh, excited about a football game or a business deal or, or something like that, a project that's been completed, that they get so high that they lose all perspective on things. And they get insensitive to those around them. They don't realize uh, the needs that are there. And they lose touch with God. He says, don't be like that. You can rejoice, but keep things in perspective. He says, you can use the world, you can possess things, but don't make full use of the world. In other words, as a Christian, don't have the mentality that some have that, well, there's a ski slope 45 minutes out of town, and so I've, I've got to take full advantage of that. I mean, it'd be a crime not to. And so I really should, you know, go skiing three or four times a week, and there are mountains there and, and rivers and hunting, and it'd be a crime not to take full advantage of that. And I have a camper and a vacation home, it'd be a, it'd be a real pity not to take full advantage, make full use of these things. Paul says as Christians, we can use them, we can have fun in these things, but not make full use of these types of things. In other words, we're people who are here on life with a purpose. We realize that the time is shortened. Let's say that you are commissioned to be the United States ambassador to Paris. You're going to be there for two years. The time is short. You have certain work that you need to get done, international relations that need to be 
worked out diplomatic and economic uh, projects you need to work on. And yet you go over there and say, gee, I've never been in Europe before. This might be my only chance. I've got to take full advantage of it. See the Eiffel Tower and the Leaning Tower of Pizza and the, uh, ride a boat up the canals in Venice and see St. Peter's and, and see all these different things, all the art museums that are there and all of the historical sites and, and uh, see all the mountains in the Swiss Alps and take full advantage of this opportunity. Well, as an ambassador, you can't do that. Now, it's fine to take advantage of some of those things as you have time, but you're there for a purpose. Your purpose is to serve your government, to fulfill certain obligations and duties. You can take advantage of your time there, but you can't take full advantage of it. In a similar way, the Bible says that we have been made ambassadors of the King of Heaven on this earth. Now, we can take advantage of the earth, of the opportunities to go skiing and hunting and all these other fun things. We can't take full advantage because we're people with a mission. We have more important things to do. Paul says, in light of this, singleness does have some advantages because you're here to serve the Lord anyway, not just to seek your own personal fulfillment in your ways, not to make full advantage of the passing opportunities of this world. And then verses 32 to 35, he states a, a third in a third way the advantage of singlehood. And really, these three different advantages of singlehood are, are the same basic thing approached from three different angles. Here he says, But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, in other words, consecrated, both in body and spirit. She may use her body and her spirit to serve God. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. He's not saying that the use of body in marriage is unholy. Just He's saying that, that the single person is more free to serve God. How she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul's point, he says, is not to burden us, not to make us feel guilty if we get married or want to get married, or if we enjoy certain things in life. But he says, I'm saying this for your own benefit, because he knows well that what is really going to fulfill us in life is our relationship to God and being involved in his service. We all want to challenge we all want to feel that our lives are meaningful and purposeful. And the real way to find that is to get involved serving God. He says, what I'm out for is to secure undistracted devotion to God. And the problem with marriage is that you are divided. You always have to be thinking about, well, uh, what do I need to do for my family? And sometimes, so it's, one of the ways you serve God is to serve the members of your family. But sometimes we get off track by serving our family. Sometimes the desire to make a pleasant home for your family distracts you into just becoming materialistic. Other times it's just a matter of time commitments. 
If you're single, you don't have to be thinking, well, how many nights a week can I afford to be away from my family to minister to people? Or how late can I stay up tonight to counsel somebody or to help somebody who's down and out because uh, because he needs me when I have my family at home who's waiting for me to get there? There are many opportunities that a single person has that a married person just doesn't have. I've had a number of opportunities since I've been here to go minister in different ways that I've had to turn down because of obligations to my family. I think they've been right. It's been right that I've turned them down. But Paul says that if you're single, it has some real advantages because you don't have to turn things down to be able to be with the family. You're more flexible. You can travel whenever you want to. You can choose your own hours. You can bring home people off the streets to your house to take care of them anytime you want to. You don't have to worry about, well, what is my family going to think? Are they going to feel that they're left out and I'm not giving them enough attention? Paul says that his aim is that we might all uh, give undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, one problem that we have is that, is that all of us, I think from time to time at least, whether we're single or married, don't give God undistracted devotion. We're distracted by the values and pursuits of things in the world. A person who's single oftentimes doesn't take advantage of the singleness to use it to serve, but rather is going around trying to hustle a mate and going to singles clubs trying to find somebody. And Paul says, don't worry about that. Don't spend your time sitting around feeling sorry for yourself and worrying, will I ever get married? Because you have an opportunity right now to serve God. Use it. Then verses 36 to 40, Paul discusses uh, two different situations in which he says marriage is acceptable, but singleness should be a live option. Our time is running out because we want to have time for uh, communion, but let me just make one comment on this section, verse 40. I think the main point of 36 to 38 is clear enough And so is 39 to 40. But let me comment on the last phrase. He says, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, it may sound like Paul is saying, I'm not really very sure of myself here. I'm not sure whether my comments here are inspired or not, but I think maybe they are. Uh, It seems that Paul instead is saying, I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Because there are many in the church in Corinth, as we learned from reading the book, who made great claims about their spirituality and their wisdom. We have the Spirit of God. We know what truth is, etc. We have wisdom. And apparently, as we mentioned last week, some of them were saying it's, it's, it's an obligation for believers to get married. And Paul is saying here somewhat ironically, well, I think I also have the Spirit of God. And my advice should be considered as well. Because he's not in doubt about his own inspiration. He's simply saying that, that uh, if they claim to have the Spirit of God, he does so more. Well, Paul's words to all of us is that we need to choose our values according to God. We need to not make a big deal about things in life that are just passing away anyway. About our social standing, about our material possessions 
about our advancement and status in the eyes of the world and and uh, our prosperity and success, about our marital state, about all these things that the world highly values. Because what's really important, he says, for eternity and also for our own satisfaction and fulfillment right now is our relationship with Jesus Christ and our service to him. By investing in ourselves in that, in those things, we're going to be investing ourselves in things that are going to last, and we're also going to ensure our real fulfillment in the present. Let's pray. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. He's not saying you as a Christian initiate divorce and try to force your unbelieving spouse to divorce you or be so cranky and irritable and hard to live with that that he wants to. Rather, the godly response is to love and be gracious to that person, try to make the marriage work. But if the unbelieving partner insists on a divorce, then you're free, he says. You're free to let the person go. You're not under bondage in such cases because God has called us to peace, not to continual fighting, not to kick and scream and bite trying to to keep the divorce from happening. Now some take this phrase, the brother or sister is not under bondage, to mean that the marriage bond is no longer uh, intact and therefore the person is free to divorce and remarry. For myself, I think that Christ gave us the only legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage, which is adultery. But here he's saying, Paul is saying, You're not under bondage to keep the marriage together. That's what the context is talking about. So you can go ahead and get a divorce. Uh, At that point, I don't think the person is free to remarry because the marriage is still valid in God's eyes until the other one starts living with somebody or marries them or enters into uh, an affair with them. In verse 16, he says why God allows this this kind of divorce to happen. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Some might feel, I've got to keep this marriage together because I'm the only link between this person and God. If I stay together, I can witness and witness and and hopefully save this person. Paul says, you don't know that. How do you know if you can ever save him? God has called us to peace. If that person is insisting on a divorce... And go ahead and give it to them. As a matter of fact, your refusal and your fight, continued fighting with them might drive them further away from God and make them resentful. But if you're gracious and submit to that request, then that might bring the person to God or make him more open. Well, we haven't been able to handle all of the questions about divorce and remarriage here. And I do have a tape that's available from the tape library or the... Uh, Check it out of the office if you want to pursue these questions further.